I'm Tanya Kurson, and this is Real Food Reads, the podcast from Real Food Media where we talk to authors of some of the most interesting books today on the intersection of food, politics, and culture. Despite its image as a local foods mecca and a land dominated by family farms, Vermont reflects national trends. Over the past 75 years, the state lost more than 90% of its dairy farms. But this doesn't mean it's producing less milk, cheese, and yogurt. Dairy farms have just gotten bigger and more industrialized. They also rely on a large number of immigrant workers from Latin America who work and live in the shadows of Vermont's food economy. Many are located within 25 miles of the Vermont-Canada border, where the presence of U.S. Border Patrol agents means many workers are scared to leave the farm they work on, even to buy food or medicine. Teresa Mayer's new book, Life on the Other Border, Farm Workers and Food Justice in Vermont, tells the story of food insecurity and fear experienced by the workers who sustain Vermont's food economy, and also how farmworker families are growing their own food and fighting for food sovereignty. Teresa Mayers is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Vermont. Teresa, welcome to Real Food Reads. Thank you so much. So there are a lot of books on immigrant labor in the food system, and many of them focus on states like California and Florida, and we've featured a number of these on Real Food Reads in the past. But your book looks at farm labor in Vermont. Can you start by talking about how it is that Latin American immigrants end up in Vermont, as opposed to states that are geographically closer to the southern border? That's often a question that I get asked because um, not a lot of focus has really been given to um, farm labor, especially in New England. And so looking at the dairy industry and how things have changed, we see a really similar story here in Vermont as we see in other key dairy producing states where um, farms over the past, especially 20, 30 years, have become uh, much larger. We've seen a number of farms going out of business. And alongside that, we're seeing a sort of a ramping up of industrial milk production. And in Vermont, what that has coincided with is a growing, although it's evening off a little bit, a growing um, importance of farm labor from Latin America. And people usually say that uh, we started seeing immigration from Latin America in the state um, in the late 90s. And so it's been about 20 years where the state has seen that in-migration. And um, it's really been almost exclusively into the dairy industry. Mm. And so what are some of the pathways that, you know, say someone from from Mexico, how do they decide to go to Vermont? It depends a little bit on the generation as well as the age of the individual. And so early on, we often saw um, farm workers coming in to do year-round work in the dairy industry from more seasonal production. And so mm-hmm. a number of the older farm workers that I spoke with would explain how um, they used to work seasonally picking sugar beets or harvesting tomatoes or harvesting tobacco, for example. And then there started being some connections here um, in Vermont a little bit after there were some of those uh, migration networks established in especially upstate New York. And so people started having an understanding of the promise of year-round work here in Vermont. Family connections started being built, and now what we do see is a lot of individuals coming directly up from Mexico after they hear about work opportunities from cousins or uncles or sisters. We're definitely talking about as far south as you can get from Mexico, often going as far north as you can get in the United States. Pretty big uh, migration pathway, but there are ways that that sort of 
been uh, facilitated and builds upon um, other kinds of migration stories in the U.S. food system. I'm wondering if you can paint a picture for us of what it's like to work on a dairy farm in Vermont and what are the day-to-day activities and, and what are the conditions like? So by and large, people are working um, in the milking barn. So milking cows, um, sometimes two, sometimes three shifts a day, often working a pretty early shift. A number of the workers that I interviewed will work maybe four in the morning till 11 in the morning, and then again from four in the afternoon until 11 in the evening, um, or sometimes there's a three-shift pattern. By and large, uh, it's working in milking barns, working with you know heavy equipment, working with um, pretty large, often dangerous animals. Um, Dairy work is one of the most dangerous forms of work in the U.S. food system. Uh, Dealing with a lot of climactic conditions, Vermont has a long, very cold winter, so often enduring those conditions is a really important sort of transition that people have to experience and adapt to. Uh, Most farm workers are living, if not directly on the farm where they're working, they're living very close, Mm -hmm. and so their experience in Vermont is often connected, you know, entirely to their workplace. You talk about, I think it's um, four or five of the counties that are nearest to the Canadian border as a carceral landscape, um, equating some of the farms in that area to actual prisons, or that's how they're experienced by the workers there. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I think that idea of a carceral landscape is is an important one because it, it gives us a really poignant understanding of how people experience living and working here is being really sort of isolated, of being penned in. The the term that individuals often use is the term encerrado, which is literally sort of enclosed Mm -hmm. or confined um, to describe their lives here in Vermont. And part of that is both the fact that Vermont's a very rural state once you get out of sort of the Chittenden County region, um, but also it's a state that is very white, um, where we are either the least or the second least diverse state in the country, uh, depending on the year. Mm. Uh, For individuals who are of indigenous background from Latin America, uh, that makes them very visible in this very rural and very white place. And so all of those dynamics kind of combine to leave people where their realities and their lives are really bound to the farm. Talking about some of these farms essentially as prisons, it's such strong language, I think maybe surprising to a lot of people who probably think of Vermont as this mecca of the local food movement made up of small, idyllic family farms. Um, and in fact, you you talk about this paradox, right, of Vermont's carefully constructed image and how it actually erases the reality of labor and immigration in the dairy sector. Yeah, and I think Vermont's an interesting place because there's multiple narratives and multiple truths happening that we are in many ways the sort of mecca of of local food. And if you look at some of the, the work that's done, for example, in the Burlington area, there's some really incredible um, food movements that are really bringing local food to a very different place in the state. But I think at the same time, it is um, it is this place where industrial dairy has a very large presence. Um, so I think we have both of those things happening at the same time. If you look economically, Vermont is the most dependent state upon one agricultural commodity, and that commodity is milk. So even while we do have you know a really vibrant local food system and some small and medium-sized farms that are thriving in a number of ways, um, we still have that really um, 
heavy influence of the dairy industry here. And if you look at, you know, how that industry is marketed, the kinds of publications that are created about it, even the actual physical products, the fact that Latin American workers are sustaining a huge percentage of farms is not at all captured. And visibility is one of these questions that I really pick up in the book, that um, we have this, you know, along with the multiple stories or the multiple sort of realities of Vermont's food system, we have these different ways that farm workers are either very invisible or very visible in Vermont. One of the other things that I think is really important and what I try to draw attention to is the fact that farm worker organizing has made farm worker struggles very visible at that same time. Mm -hmm. I was here at a fortunate time to, to witness and participate in some of that organizing work. Yeah. Can you maybe talk about an example um, of a particular campaign that you were close to and that you witnessed unfold? Sure. So I um, I followed the Milk with Dignity campaign pretty closely, um, both as an academic researcher and as someone that was interested sort of on a personal level. That campaign was uh, a really hard-fought victory by the organization Migrant Justice, which brings a new program to the dairy industry specifically within Ben & Jerry's supply chain. So the Fair Food Program, which is the Coalition of Mockley Worker Model, the Penny Per Pound Model, is really sort of the inspiration for the Milk with Dignity Program. In this case, the corporate buyer is Ben & Jerry's, and rather than sort of uh, a penny per pound, it's more focused on ensuring that dairy farms who supply Ben & Jerry's with their milk are um, abiding by a farm worker authored code of conduct. And just to clarify, the, the Penny Per Pound campaign that you're talking about and the Fair Food program are initiatives that came from the state of Florida led by workers involved in the tomato harvest down there supplying fast food chains. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And so it's this idea of the pressure, you know, or where we can see a really large scale change is often making change in corporate purchasing practices, whether it's, you know, Yum Foods or whether it's Ben and Jerry's, but if these companies are making huge purchases of tomatoes or milk that, you know, even sort of small changes can add up to really large scale transformations in the supply chain for workers. It reminds me, you have a section in your book called, I think, Reform, Reform or Revolution, <laughs> I think, um, which is obviously a, a question that has plagued leftists and lefty debate <laughs> for many, many years. But I think that um, it's an especially salient question when it comes to immigrant worker rights um, in the United States, because when you think about something like a penny more per pound, for tomatoes, it seems like something squarely in the reformist camp um, that, you know, can't achieve the kinds of big structural changes that are needed to deal with all of this injustice. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think, you know, that that's a um, that sort of I would say a really false binary has been set up by people um, looking at the food movement and looking at this question of do we need to burn it down and rebuild it again or can we make small changes? And I think to me it's not really a question of whether we should go sort of full-scale sort of reform or full-scale revolution because I think even within some of the campaigns um, of migrant justice or of the coalition of Mockley workers, we see, I think, a really skillful um, alternation between those different strategies. And I think that large-scale sort of revolutionary changes, in my mind, of course, something that we should 
keep in mind. But I think while we're working towards that, I think some of these um, very specific, very concrete changes, whether it's policy at the local level or whether it's these kinds of corporate purchasing practices, I think are really um, important and you know indicate wins that can be sort of moved into more large-scale, broad-based change. Right. Yeah. I often think of the Black Panthers formulation of survival pending revolution, right, where some of these <laughs> maybe <laughs> more incremental changes actually make a make a big difference in people's ability to survive and sustain themselves and improve their quality of life um, while maybe more yeah. radical changes are also being sought. Yeah, and absolutely. And I think, you know, if we look at some of the, the architecture of these models, right, having a farm worker authored code of conduct that large scale corporations have to follow, mm. um, that is pretty radical. That's <laughs> a very different balance of power than we typically see in, in large scale food systems. <laughs> yeah, so you talk a lot about, you know, and with great empathy and a lot of personal stories about people and families who work on these dairy farms in Vermont, and actually a lot of the, you know, I guess mental health challenges that many experience to the extent that many don't leave the farms, um, even to buy food or medicine. And so, you know, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. But, you know, I'm also curious, how is it under these conditions that farm workers are able to overcome that fear and anxiety and actually organize um, in this very visible way? Yeah, there's been some work that's been done both on sort of ongoing stress. Um, I was part of a project that was an applied project with a, a local clinic and a farm worker um, health outreach program where we were um, actually using comics to alleviate and address some of the mental health concerns in the community. But I think that there's certainly these really severe mental health concerns. I think if we put ourselves in those shoes of living thousands of miles away from our family and working 70 hours a week and not having the time to spend with friends and colleagues, I think that we can see how that would certainly have impacts on mental and emotional health, you know, and that coupled with difficulty in accessing food or accessing food that's culturally meaningful, a lot of times all of these different sort of markers of well-being combine and, you know, often become really difficult for people to deal with. And that was actually kind of the the focus of this comics project as well as what I've talked to people about in my research is, you know, given these challenges, um, there's a number of on-farm challenges, there's a number of social and emotional health challenges, how are people um, dealing with that? And people, I think, are really, really resilient in ways that we need to pay equal attention to. Mm-hmm. So in the work that I've done, I've seen people be very resilient in you know, the acts of growing their own food through a farm worker gardening project that I helped to coordinate especially growing food that is really difficult to find here in grocery stores and right. putting down some actual roots in, in U.S. soil through these gardens, I think, is a way that people demonstrate resiliency through some of that farm worker organizing that I've mentioned. We also see a lot of resiliency in people being unafraid to be visible and to draw attention to the conditions on some of the farms or the systemic problems within the industry. Is there a specific story that you can share with us of an individual or a family that stuck with you? I know you you tell dozens of stories in your book, but um, I'm wondering if there's one in particular you can share with us. 
Yeah, certainly. I think one of the stories that um, really sticks with me is the story of the young family. And when we first met, this mother had one daughter. And when we asked her about, you know, her, her experiences, she described, well, I didn't leave the apartment once for three months because I didn't have anywhere to go. And I, you know, had no way to get there. And so she became a participant in this farmer her gardening project that I helped coordinate. And over time, she really sort of connected in with a specific garden, with being a, a gardener and having that identity, being someone that grows her own food. Um, it was a practice that her own family in Mexico was very familiar with. Um, and over time, you know, that was a place that she could take her children and, um, be outside, even within sort of the boundaries of the farm. Um, but I think one of the things that really stuck with me about her story is uh, when she was pregnant with her second child, she was on her way to a prenatal appointment and she saw Border Patrol, you know, waiting not too far off the farm. And that actually discouraged her from going to that appointment. And she would talk to me about how in Mexico she was poor, but she had freedom. Whereas in the United States, they might be making, you know, relatively good money compared to what they could earn back home. But they felt really um, afraid oftentimes of any place beyond the farm. I found a lot of meaning in her story, you know, as a young mom, just thinking about how those broader conditions impacted her, you know, daily life and her choices over the well-being of her kids was something that really sticks with me. Right, and I, I think this is something where getting a lot of in the news right now maybe maybe not with this kind of nuance right of how different everyone's individual story is and why they make the choices that they do at different points in their lives why to migrate to a new country or whether or not to take their children with them I wonder if if you've encountered that fear of separation from one's children that we're hearing so much about yeah, what I what I saw is um especially right after the presidential election, this kind of rush for people to make contingency plans in case parents were detained. You know, if we look at the recent ice raids and the you know, the chicken processing facilities, we see the realities of people being separated from their kids and the great fear that that strikes into those parents' hearts and the kids as well. Um, so in Vermont, what we saw is this idea that if there were raids, if there was sort of a ramping up of um, detentions and deportations, that families were making plans for what would happen with their kids and who would take temporary guardianship of them. And I thought I had my book research done prior to the election. I thought, you know, I'm going to write this up, it's going to be done. And then in the midst of putting on some of the final touches to the data collection, the election happened, and you know, with it, all of the rhetoric we saw and continue to see against immigrant communities. And so I did a number of follow-up interviews, and especially the moms that I talked to expressed a lot of anxiety about the well-being of their children and what might happen to them if they, if they themselves were detained. You know, one thing I wanted to make sure to ask you about is your your title, Life on the Other Border. And so what what difference does proximity to an international border make? Yeah, so I think we have to acknowledge the fact that the, the U.S.-Mexico border is a very different place than the U.S.-Canada border. Um, you know, the violence and the fear and the, the camps that are popping up along that border are very much not happening here. 
um, in Vermont. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, what we see in this sort of post 9-11 world and increasing attention to our, our border security has happened both on the northern and the southern border. There's been a, a scholar that describes the U.S.-Canada border post 9-11 as being Mexicanized. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an interesting um, characterization. I don't completely agree with it because of what I do know about the dangers of the southern border. But what we see in Vermont are people experiencing borders kind of on a daily basis, you know, that they have the border of the farm that may or may not be something that they want to cross. They right. have often the very scary memory of crossing into the United States and, you know, crossing often by foot in really perilous conditions, and then coming to live in a place that is a, is a border state. Right. And so this northern border um, and the, the proximity of Border Patrol and the, you know, regular policing of Border Patrol is something that is really shaping the daily realities of farm workers here in the state. And, uh, you know, sometimes people don't actually even know that they live that close to Canada. I remember in a really early conversation, an individual really didn't even know where in the state they were um, because of right. conditions that brought them to that farm. But within Vermont, I think one of the things that um, the border and border proximity, sort of how that plays out in the state is those northern counties, you know, the, the border counties are understood within the farm worker community as a difficult place to live and work. And I've had conversations with individuals who live a little bit further south. They will be like, oh, yeah, my friends, my colleagues up north have a much harder time than I do. So in the work that I've done on food security, we see difference in um, the rates of food insecurity based on those county um, differences. They did work on self-medication and how likely people are to request medicines by mail because they're either unable or afraid to go to pharmacies here. And so even within the small state, you know, the small gradient of space can mean um, a very different reality depending on how close people are to that U.S.-Canada border and uh, the patrolling of it. You must be familiar with this study also of rates of diet-related disease, I believe, in Mexico, which increase relative to the proximity to the U.S. border. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we also see that happening with immigration into the United States and, you know, what is so-called the immigrant paradox, where often people are pretty healthy um, right after they immigrate into the United States. And then over time, the dietary acculturation that can happen. The United States and our food system and our food practices definitely uh, impact those who come close to it. At Real Food Media, we partner closely with the Food Chain Workers Alliance and, you know, research that they've done as well as other organizations like Restaurant Opportunities Center um, has shown that workers across the food chain, from farm workers to restaurant servers, experience disproportionate levels of food insecurity. Um, like, you know, basically the people growing, distributing, processing, slaughtering, serving, preparing food, eat worse food and experience more hunger? That's kind of the central question of the project or where I started is, you know, were farm workers in Vermont food insecure? And what we see is that there are elevated rates compared to the Vermont average, but it wasn't actually as startling as uh, previous studies had shown. And so while there are elevated rates of food insecurity, one of the things that I point out in my book is the ways that we measure food insecurity, especially with immigrant families, are really flawed. Right. And so there's one main tool, the Household Food Security Survey Module, which is the USDA survey. But what I think is important is that, you know, this quick survey, when I gave it, it's almost entirely based upon this assumption that if you have money, you have food, um, which is mm -hmm. a good proxy. 
right, that hunger and poverty go hand in hand. Um, but one of the things that I realized through my research is I would do this survey and I'd get through the questions and people would say, okay, well, sure, I have the money, Teresa, but I'm afraid to go to the grocery store. I, I have the money, but I'm sending 70% of it back home. I think one of the things that we have to sort of peel back a little bit is what do we really mean by food insecurity and what do we mean by food access? And are we defining it in this sort of narrow way that is captured in some of these research tools? Or do we need to think about it much more broadly about access to culturally familiar food through um, means that don't inspire fear? <laughs> um, right. And so while the numbers that I um, pull out, you know, show that there are elevated rates, I think the qualitative data that I add to that about people's experiencing food access issues, I think are really compelling to me, at least. Um, individuals, you know, deciding that they're not going to speak Spanish in the grocery store because they don't want someone to call Border Patrol on them. All of those layers of food access and food security that I think are really important to consider as well. You know, one of the programs that farm workers are using to address some of this is, you know, this farm worker gardening program, basically, you know, growing their own food. And I think it sounds very logical, right? Like, well, these are people who have most of them experience growing food. They know how to do it. Many of them come from farming backgrounds. But I guess the question is, how do they find the time um, yeah. First of all, and do they have access to land and seeds and other resources they need to grow healthy, cultural, appropriate food? Yeah, I think that's a really, I mean, it's a, it's a really important point because, you know, the project that, um, it's called Worthus, which is a, a project of UVM extension. Yeah, there's very real constraints to the program. And what we're trying to do is that we're working with farm workers who might be working 70 hours a week in a state that might if we're lucky, have three months of a growing season <laughs> and growing foods, especially from some of the regions where people are coming from, you know, different climactic conditions for sure. But I think one of the things that we've seen is like, even if it's just a small amount of herbs that you wouldn't be able to find at the grocery store, or even if, you know, for those two months, you're spending a little bit less money on, on groceries. And so you can spend, you know, a little bit more sending money back home. Mm -hmm. That's an important thing. So, yeah, I think that we do see some of these uh, solutions, but, you know, also solutions like uh, women opening up small catering businesses and delivering foods onto farms and especially delivering meals that might be more culturally familiar or some of the kind of underground delivery programs that are bringing Mexican products up from some of the larger cities in the Northeast up onto farms, that those are also ways that people are, are accessing things sometimes at very elevated prices. And so I think, you know, food security and food access is a, is a big comprehensive question. And um, that's what I try to peel apart a little bit in this book is, you know, what does it really mean and how also might we understand the hunger and the food insecurity that people experience in Mexico or Guatemala as being some of the motivations for them to migrate in the first place? You know, oftentimes people have experienced hunger across their entire life, and, and moving into the United States was an attempt to address some of that. And in many cases, the result of, you know, U.S., foreign policy or U.S. trade and investment policies that undermined food security or food sovereignty in the country of origin, right? Absolutely, yeah. And and that's where, you know, in, in digging into some of the 
the histories of people, you know, I would often ask people, well, when did your family start experiencing changes? And, you know, not too long after NAFTA, (laughs) (laughs) Um, that time period and, you know, an increasing difficulty in making a living as a small scale farmer in Mexico was certainly linked to a number of the reasons why people um, migrated to begin with. One of the things that, that you go into detail about, which I really appreciated, was the concept of food sovereignty and how useful or even necessary this concept is that was developed by farmers and workers themselves in order to come up with solutions um, to achieve food security. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the difference between food security and food sovereignty. You know, I I can hear Raj Patel's voice in my head that food sovereignty is about the right to have rights and that I think food sovereignty offers this really deep vision and understanding for a more comprehensive, holistic, dignity-based relationship with food. And I think it's a really important concept. I think it's a really important movement, you know, if we're thinking about a community who by and large does not have sovereignty over their food, does not have a lot of agency and control over what they're eating, where can we see some, you know, illuminations of that, whether it's the herbs and the chilies that they're growing through this program, or whether it's through the rare trip off farm where they're able to have a meal with family members. I think that Mm -hmm. thinking about food sovereignty on sort of the daily basis to me is a really uh, important move and I think is a really anthropological move. Um, Anthropologists like to think about daily life and the daily choices and the daily behaviors that we engage in. And I think that thinking about food sovereignty on that daily level is is an important way to think both about people's connections with food and also where those connections are really missing. And for individuals who are, by and large, working to profit others, you know, in this large-scale industrial production, mm-hmm. I think it would be a miss to say that they can't engage in food sovereignty or they can't exhibit, you know, a sovereign relationship over their food, even while it might be really compromised. Thanks for listening to the Real Food Reads podcast. Join the book club and find out about future book selections and other resources at realfoodmedia.org. You can now listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave us a review wherever you listen.